session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before um, I talk about the book of the week from this past week, the book of the week for this week is The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes by David Robson. The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. Uh, definitely got drawn to the title, sounded interesting, but don't know much else about it other than that. But we'll read that this week and share it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week for t- uh, last week that I'll talk about tonight is the new Malcolm Gladwell book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And so many of you are probably familiar with Malcolm Gladwell. He's written many best sellers, including Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers, amongst others, um, and has been known to write just very good books that are easy to read, sharing social science types type of stories and information, but writing it in a very um, easy-to-read type of a way. And so I think it had been five or six years since he had released a book, um, and so this was his latest book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know about the people we don't know. Uh, I talked about it last week a bit because I had started it early. It was longer than some of the books I read, but an easy read, 350 pages, but um, kind of reads like a story more than some of the other books. Uh, And that's actually a testament to his writing. Malcolm Gladwell is a very good writer. He can talk about various things like Cuban spies and the Amanda Knox uh, trial to Sylvia Plath and issues of suicide, all different types of topics related to an underlying theme, but does it in a very good way, which makes his writing easy to read. Uh, Overall, I mentioned, I think I mentioned this, I'm not sure last time, but um, I wasn't quite sure what the thesis is as you read the book. So it goes, goes in lots of different directions and does share a lot of different ways that we might make mistakes or errors in trying to understand one another, which is very important. But it's hard to say there's a clear message for sure that this is what we need to do. He does share some thoughts at the end about having humility, which I think is important, and thoughtfulness and a willingness to look beyond the stranger, and that's important, and to take time, place, and context into account. Uh, That's basically a quote from the book near the end, uh, which I think is important, but it is pretty... It's easier to say that and harder to do. Uh, But anyway, in the book, he gets into several different traps that we can get into when it comes to understanding one another. Overall, we're very good at reading each other, but sometimes we don't do so well. So there's a few different uh, things he talks about or ways that we make mistakes 
the one of the first ones is a default to truth, which basically is that we tend to assume someone is telling the truth most of the time. So even if something is a little bit unclear or if someone might be showing some signs that they're un, not so trustworthy, we tend to default to assuming they're telling the truth. And he shares stories of Cuban spies that had infiltrated the CIA of, here in the United States during the Cold War. Um, and people just assumed, even though sometimes there is in hindsight some red flags, that they were telling the truth or that they were okay. Uh, or the case of Bernie Madoff, who had a Ponzi scheme where he basically, I think it was billions of dollars that he was uh, managing and he was really lying to investors. But people just assumed he was telling the truth, even though there were some red flags here and there. So it's this concept, default to truth, that we tend to assume people are telling the truth, even when there might be something fishy going on. And he himself acknowledges that it makes sense to have a default to truth. We can't uh, encounter every individual in every interaction, doubt them and say it's 50-50 that they're telling the truth or lying. Just in order to have social life, we have to really default to truth. So he does acknowledge that in a way, but at the same time brings it up, um, which is maybe he's saying why we might read people wrong sometimes, but it's hard to say what to do with that. Maybe recognize that we default to truth or also, I, I think another way of looking at it, and he does in a way talk about this, that when other people didn't catch someone who was lying or cheating or doing something, that we realize we all have this tendency. So in hindsight, it seems really easy. When you look back and look at Bernie Madoff, you might think, oh, how did people not realize it was a scheme? People were suspicious. People saw some things they couldn't quite figure out. But why didn't they come forward or investigate him or do more? But we have to remember that in hindsight, things are very clear. But when things are happening, we don't know. Or it's more ambiguous. So if there's sometimes a tragedy and we say, for example, this, you know, I don't know, a fire broke out and burned this building and many people got hurt, we might think of it as the day of the fire. But when the day was happening, they didn't think it was the day of the fire. It was a day like any other day. And so we assumed it was different. So similarly, when we look back at people, we think it's so easy to know they were lying. But um, we have to realize we have this default to truth. So we assume they're being honest even when they maybe are not being honest. And some of the stories are quite fascinating, talking about uh, Cuban spies and the CIA. He talks about the Jerry Sandusky case. He was a coach on the Penn State football team who was charged later with a history of sexual abuse of boys. But for years, there was some suspicions, but no one really came forward and and made it clear that he, in fact, might be doing something wrong or it wasn't really dealt with. Uh, he also talks about how Neville Chamberlain met with Hitler and after meeting him was thought that, no, this is a trustworthy guy, that when he says he doesn't have intentions of taking over the world, he doesn't. He just wants to uh, take over this one part of, I think it was Czechoslovakia, that was a German background or German ethnicity, the people that lived there. So he wanted to take over that German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia. And he said that was it. He didn't want to do more. And of course, we all know that was not the case. But he talks about how by meeting Hitler, he became more convinced that Hitler was okay and trustworthy rather than recognizing that he was quite dangerous. And so there is something to be said there that at times we think by meeting someone, we'll have a better understanding of them. But when people are trying to hide something 
from us, we actually sometimes can be misled. So, and you see this happen even in current history with some world leaders meeting and feeling like they know the other person, feeling like they know they're a good guy. I think when George W. Bush met Vladimir Putin, he said he was a very good guy, or I can tell he was an honest guy. And it was because Putin shared a story about church and something about the importance of church. And that made George W. Bush think he was trustworthy and good. And later he definitely changed his mind about Putin. But at first that meeting made him think he was much more trustworthy than he was. So here's another uh, kernel of truth or good point that Malcolm Gladwell makes in this book, which is that we think we're better at detecting lies than we actually are. And so we're very good at when people are telling the truth, at spotting them, or when people tell a lie, but they do it very blatantly. Sometimes we can be good at that too, although even with that, we might not be good. But if someone is trying to hide something and lie to us, even FBI and CIA officials, even therapists, even police officers, they don't do very good at detecting the lies. We think we're good. We all think, okay, I know if someone looks away, they're lying. But you know, when people are nervous, they also look away, even if they're just nervous about the situation, not nervous because they're hiding something. So we think we're very good at catching people in lies, but we're not so good. Of course, we're going to get it right sometimes, but we're not these expert lie detectors. And so I even know as a psychologist, I think I'm good at understanding people and reading people, but I know I can be lied to and misled by someone, that I'm not immune to that. I try to be aware and mindful of things that might give me more information, but even still, can someone lie to me? Absolutely. That's just part of being human. Um, some of it might be our default to truth, but also we just aren't that good at figuring out when someone is not telling the truth. Um, and another important theme he talks about is transparency. So transparency is that we tend to think that someone's external reactions is a very good match and a direct match to what they're feeling internally. And he talks about this example or uses example of the show Friends, which is one of the most famous sitcoms of all time. And many people are familiar with it. And he was saying how when you look at their reactions, they have these very exaggerated and very clear and transparent ways of showing their feelings. So if they're surprised and then sad, they show both of those feelings on their face very clearly, or at least clear to what most viewers would see. And so it, it uh, in a way, makes us think that everyone is going to interact in this way or act in this way. So if someone is surprised, clearly we're going to see it in their face because that's what we're used to thinking and seeing. But when it turns out and we look at it more closely, we see that a lot of times people, when they're surprised, they don't make the stereotypical surprised face. And they've done research showing this where people were created uh, or put into a situation where they would feel and experience surprise and they said they were surprised. But when people looked at those faces, they couldn't tell. When they looked at the people going through the experience, it wasn't clear to them that they were experiencing surprise. So we actually think that people are very transparent in how they feel on the on the inside with what they're showing us on the outside, but this is not the case. And where this especially becomes an issue is when people are mismatched, which is something you talked about. So if someone is telling the truth and they're acting in the way we tend to think people are telling the truth, then we're okay. 
or if someone is lying and it seems very stereotypical of lying, maybe we can catch that. The problems become when someone is on the outside showing something but different on the inside. So you have someone who is looking like, let's say, a liar, but they're telling the truth, but because they're so nervous, we think they're lying. So we see them fidgeting, we see them looking away, we see them talking in an uncomfortable manner, and we think, oh, that must be a liar. But it actually turns out they're just nervous, so that's a mismatch. What they're showing on the outside, that they're not trustworthy, doesn't match what's on the inside. And of course, the opposite is someone who's trying to lie to us, but is very good at covering it, and they look like they're telling the truth when they're actually lying. And so we see a lot of that. For example, when Chamberlain met Hitler, he thought he was an honest guy, but that's because he was very good at hiding his internal intentions, trying to make Chamberlain feel like they were actually very close and they trusted each other by doing what was a double handshake, which apparently Hitler only uh, reserved for people he trusted or felt close to. But this is where we get into a lot of trouble when we try to understand someone who is actually at a mismatch and we sometimes get it very wrong. And he shares the story of Amanda Knox, who was a young girl living in a small town or village in Italy, I think sounded like it was some kind of foreign exchange program. And her roommate was murdered and she was actually not only accused, but was held, I think, for about four years in Italian custody because they felt that she was guilty for the crime. But really what it seemed to be was that she was a little bit goofy. And even from how it seems, I almost want to see this documentary that's about her in this trial, um, that she might have been just socially a little bit different or off or not realizing certain social cues that made people feel like there's no way someone's roommate could have been just murdered and they act in this way. So for example, they had to put these booties on to walk through i think some place that maybe there was evidence and when she put them on she made a kind of moved her hips and said ta-da in some kind of almost funny way trying to be funny and people thought how could you be trying to be funny when we're dealing with something so serious so because her reactions were not what we thought we would expect from someone whose roommate had just been murdered people assumed she had to have been guilty or part of that when it just turned out maybe she was kind of a goofball and just acted a little bit differently, but it didn't mean she was actually guilty of doing such a horrible thing. So that's a big theme that runs throughout the book is that when there's a mismatch, this is where we get in trouble. We start to assume things. So that part at the end, the advice about being humble, having humility, I think, again, is worth noting that we, of course, try to understand each other, try to look at people, and we're always observing each other and We make judgments whether we want to or not, but we try to suspend those judgments as much as we can, realizing that we can be wrong a lot of the times. And a lot of the assumptions we have, and this one is a big one, this transparency that we think that when someone is sad, they're going to show it a certain way. When someone is surprised, it'll look some way on their face and we'll know it, is not always the case. So we try our best to understand one another. We observe them as much as we can, but we also realize that we won't always know. And even if we think we do, we have to at least check that a little bit. So I'm going to talk a bit more about this book because I didn't get to everything I wanted to discuss in this first segment, which is Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know by Malcolm Gladwell. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Talking about the book, Talking to Strangers, my Malcolm Gladwell, what we should know about the people we don't know. Um, actually, just saying the title again, there's another thing that I thought was, I kind of didn't like about the book was that it says Talking to Strangers, but which is a good title because, you know, when you're a kid, they're, they tell you, your parents tell you not to talk to strangers. Um, but in the book, the, what a stranger is, it's not always so clear. Sometimes it's someone you just met, but sometimes I was talking about people like um, CIA co-workers who might have known each other for years. So is that still a stranger? Or what does that exactly mean? So that definition of stranger seemed to change in some ways, but I guess really what it's about is other, just reading and understanding other people because he says in a way that our own friends, we know them better, so we sometimes know the context but then in some of these cases, people knew each other for a long time or maybe thought someone was a friend, but didn't quite know them. So that was something else that I didn't quite like, that it didn't make it clear what the point was as far as calling people strangers or what that definition was in defining what we're talking about. Um, so that also was something that kind of was a little off-putting for me. Uh, but let me go to another key topic or concept he introduces in the book, which is of coupling. And I thought this was actually a very good um, point to discuss that he brought up, that we sometimes think that people that do a certain behavior or action would have done that action no matter what. And so he talks about suicide. And so a lot of people think, well, if you take away one way for someone to kill themselves, if they really want to kill themselves, they'll find another way. And in some extreme cases, that might be true, but we find that actually the means someone has and the way they want to kill themselves can be a big uh, indicator into whether or not they will even attempt and then if that attempt will end up in a death. Um, so he shares a story of a poet, Sylvia Plath, uh, who took her own life by putting her head in a, head in a oven in, in uh, England where she was living at that time the ovens released a mixture of gas which also included carbon monoxide which made it very toxic and she ended up dying in that way and then there's a way we look back at her and think oh she was a poet and she talked a lot about death and suicide she did she had passed suicide attempts she had some things that weren't going so well in her life like the man that she loved had left her and um, we think well it was inevitable that she would have taken her own life but what we see is that this is not, we can't make that assumption, even though it might seem like in some way almost romantic, this depressed poet taking her life, but that the means of taking your life can make a big impact. And this is actually why uh, when you talk about guns in America, usually we think of gun violence in the case of homicides or murders or mass shootings, killing other people. But actually what might even be more of an issue is that suicide, uh, that guns are used for suicide and unfortunately are a very, very um, fatal way of taking one's life, meaning that they very often lead to death. I try to avoid some of the terms. I forgot what the more uh, the alternative is because sometimes we'll say successful suicides or completed suicides. To me, the person has died, but they can be a little bit. I don't like the word successful. Completed might be more uh, okay, but I still don't like that so much. But nonetheless, you're more likely to end up actually dying if you shoot yourself than if you use other ways. Like pills, actually, when he, he put this statistic in the book, uh, it's a very low percentage of actually leading to death. Um, 
but something like a firearm is a very high percentage. Or he talks also about the Golden Gate Bridge and people jumping off of that bridge. And people think if you built a protective net around it or some way, a barricade, it wouldn't make a difference. People would find some other way to take their life, but maybe that's not the case. And so people actually resisted building some kind of barricade. Uh, actually, I had, you might remember a few years ago, Kevin Hines, uh, who he attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, and thankfully he did not die. Uh, and He survived, and now he goes around the country, and I think even around the world, talking to people about mental health and suicide, and has become this really great advocate for reducing the stigma attached to mental illness and also talking about suicide and is doing great work. Um, but, you know, it's interesting having him on and talking about his experience and then seeing in this book, talking about the Golden Gate Bridge and how we think that people would find some other way. But a lot of times it turns out they probably would not. And so if you make it very easy for people to take their own life, unfortunately they will. And so we saw, and he puts the statistics in the book about how, young women, that was a way they would take their life was using the gas from the oven or gas in some way from their homes to take their own life. And once that was removed or they transitioned to a different type of gas that did not have the carbon monoxide, you saw a decrease in the suicides. So it wasn't just that people would find some other way. And for me, this is also, I talked about guns when it comes to suicide, but when it comes to harming others, it's a reason why I think we should think about not having guns or having less guns in this country because they lead to more deaths because we are impulsive people. That's just part of being human that at times we get to a certain state of mind emotionally and, and in our judgment that we make certain types of decisions and bad ones that we might later regret even later as in an hour later, um, sometimes a lot longer than that, but we will often come back and regret. Even a lot of people who have attempted suicide and didn't die will say uh, once they enacted or they started the process, they were hoping or they had regret and wish they hadn't done that. And similarly with people getting angry and shooting each other or shooting at one another, or having a mass shooting, a lot of times if someone didn't have those means, people will say, well, they would just go stabbing people. Well, maybe they would, but they would inflict a lot less harm. But also when we make it easier for people to harm other people, unfortunately they do. I'm convinced that if you strapped a nuclear bomb on every person's back, so we were just all carrying a nuclear bomb and we were told it was a nuclear bomb, we understood, still we would soon have someone detonating their own nuclear bomb because they were so angry or wanted to get revenge or whatever it is they wanted to do. So we shouldn't give people that power to do so much. We shouldn't give people the force that they can cause so much harm. So I think that's important to keep in mind. And so this this idea of coupling ties into that, that he talks about in the book, that we just assume if someone was so depressed that they were going to kill themselves anyway. But really there is a lot to be said about how people can do something like that actually affects the likelihood that they do take their life or that they don't. So actually a risk factor for suicide is if you have a firearm in your house, because that could be used to kill yourself. And so in this book, he talks about Sylvia Plath and another poet, I think her name was Anna Sexton, who was a friend of Sylvia Plath's as well. And she took her life, unfortunately, by running the car and closing the garage door. 
And he said also with her, years later, that same car no longer released the same amount of carbon monoxide that would allow someone to kill themselves in that way. So maybe she wouldn't have done it either. Um, and so in hindsight, we think, of course, they killed themselves. They would have done it one way or the other. But it's not actually true that that has to be the case, that the way people do it, that's part of the context, can have a big impact on what they decide to do. There was also a chapter in the book talking about alcohol, and it was talking about the case of Brock Turner. M many of you might be familiar because it got a lot of media attention and social media attention. He was, I think he was a swimmer, but at Stanford University and at a fraternity party, he ended up sexually assaulting this woman, basically having sex with her while she was unconscious. And then he was found by two graduate students that happened to be passing by. It happened like in an alley and they stopped him and eventually they got to him and then he was arrested. People were outraged because after all of the trial, uh, he was found guilty, but he was only sentenced to six months in jail and he was released after just serving three months. And many people felt that this was far too little a punishment for what he had done. Um, but in this chapter, what I thought, there's a few things I didn't like. He, it seemed that he was being too conclusive about alcohol and its effects being just about making people more myopic or just focused on the moment rather than seeing the bigger picture, which definitely is a big part of it. But overall, that's one of the things, a critique I had in general of his writing is that sometimes the conclusions are a very sweeping conclusion that this is this and that's it very black and white when it's a lot of times more gray which could make for good writing and even storytelling or even sometimes conveying some information by making it so black and white but i felt like it wasn't appropriate at some times and that was one of them and even in this chapter what i also didn't like was that he seemed to in some ways say that what brock turner had done was mostly based on miscommunication or failure to communicate and that alcohol played a big part in this. And it did, but in some ways it seemed to almost justify or exonerate the actions of sexual assault that saying that it was alcohol was more the culprit uh, than maybe other things. At least that's how I read it, which I didn't like or think was fair to put it that way. But yes, alcohol will make us even worse at understanding each other or seeing the cues when we're so focused on the here and now, which does happen with drinking alcohol, but not the only thing. So I thought that was a little bit um, almost, to me, too generous to people who commit sexual assault to say that we can say it's the alcohol that is, is really the culprit. I think that's not a good uh, way of really looking at the whole situation. Of course, there's a lot of things involved, but to me, that was a little bit too black and white, cut and dried. Uh, but overall, the book is a good read, an easy read, like I said. Um, sometimes the conclusions I felt he made were a little bit too clear, too black and white. He starts the book and ends the book with the case of Sandra Bland, who was a young woman, and he had, she had a very bad interaction with a police officer that ended really bad it, it started with just something a minor traffic infraction she didn't change lanes which even seems to be because he was really getting close to her the police officer and so she got out of the way but didn't signal and so he pulled her over but then it escalated from there to eventually her getting arrested 
and then three days after being detained, she hung herself in her jail cell and died. And so it was pretty tragic. And this also got a lot of media and social media attention. And so he talks about their interaction and how it was two strangers who didn't quite know each other. And the police officer made a lot of assumptions about the young woman that appeared not to be true, but affected how he interacted with her and how he escalated and things escalated. Um, and so it was about miscommunication in a lot of ways, but there's not really a solution about how to, to do that. And the book ends with how we tend to blame the other person. We blame the stranger when they do something we don't like, or things don't go well. And, uh, you know, that, that is probably true that we do that, but I don't know if that gives us a solution or a way of dealing with things. And so that was, again, one of the arguments I had or things I didn't like about the book was that sometimes things were too simplified, uh, that it's just this and that's it, or it's about default to truth and transparency. And that explains all of these miscommunications or all miscommunications we have, which he doesn't say that black and white, but almost at times it feels that way that it's, it's simplified to those things. And I think that to me is not painting the full picture. I know a lot of times people prefer black and white and things to be that clear, I prefer getting, even if you have to get lost a little bit, getting lost in the nuance or the gray that makes it more clear what actually is going on and painting the whole picture. But I think that's also his writing style is very much making things simplified. I even looked up some of the critiques of the book um, and some people were talking about some of the statistics and things he used that were not so, um, you know, he, for example, said, I think, Poets have five times, as much as five times higher rate of suicide as the rest of the population. But that when I looked, someone looked into that, you see that it's a very, very obscure study that was done on a small number of poets and even in a way, an indirect way. So it wasn't really a uh, reputable statistic, but it's laid out kind of as a fact. And that, I think, is not very good where it makes sense. I would assume that poets have a higher rate of suicide than the general population, but you don't have to cherry pick a stat to make it, say, five times as much if that's not what it is or what that's really based on. I think you can still make a very strong point without doing that. So there were some of those critiques that Gladwell has gotten of sometimes cherry picking statistics or making things sound a certain way when maybe it's not so black and white. And at times I had that issue with this book as well, but there are some important issues that he did bring up. Um, the things of like default to truth, transparency, I think is important in how we're often much more mismatched than we think. And this concept or idea that we tend to think we can read people so well, but even people who are almost professionals at reading people, CIA officers, FBI, um, therapists, we're not as good as we think. And so maintaining that humility when we're interacting with one another, I think can be important. So it's a, it's a good book, an easy read, but I would just keep some of those things in mind, but feel free to share with me your thoughts on this book. If you've read it or any other book that I've talked about, uh, let's go to a, our last commercial break studio number three, one zero four, four, one zero five, five, five. We'll be right back. back let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air yes yes hi 
Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you very much. Um, I have a four-year-old son, mm -hmm. and uh, we are facing a lot of challenges these days. Uh, can you speak? Um, can you speak a little bit louder, please? Um, uh, we have a four-year-old yes. son, and we are facing a lot of challenges with him these days to go to the bathroom. Okay. We potty trained him when he was around uh, three and a half, and relatively, it was a very, very easy and smooth transition. And uh, we we thought that wow, we passed through this bridge so easily. And he used to come and tell us that he needs to go do number one and number two. And my husband and I, we were congratulating ourselves that wow, we did this so perfectly. We didn't face a lot of challenges. But I don't know at what point and what incident it happened that suddenly he started showing a lot of resistance. And he tells me it's because that one time I took him to bathroom by force for him to pee because he was holding his pee. Anyhow, these days it has become like a nightmare. He holds to his pee and he's number two. And... Um, uh, and I know that psychologically this has very bad effects uh, in future for him. So I keep trying to explain to him why is it bad for his body, for him to hold on to his pee and uh, his poo. And just in, uh, tonight, uh, I mean, we had to come up with some like ideas like, okay, let's go in the bathroom and turn on the candle in order to convince him to like just sit on the potty and do his number two. Or we used to take phone with, for him so he watches like videos while he does his business. But he would get so mesmerized into the videos that he would forget why he went to the bathroom. And mm -hmm. I just don't think it was a good idea to take the phone. He used to go and do... You know, he used to come and tell us that he has to go and pee and he has to go and poo, and it was no problem. So I don't know at what point, what did he do wrong that it has become now his thing, and he he holds on to it, and we see him that he's suffering, like he's hmm. agitated, and we have to, like, bribe him with candy or, you know, videos or, you know, let's do turn on a candle or something like that just to convince him to go to the bathroom. And I want and also just so you know, he, he has been diagnosed as a gifted child. So he it hasn't been easy raising him. He's very emotional. He senses things and understands things way beyond his age mm -hmm. and it causes him to to be sensitive. He's very sensitive, he understands things way beyond his age. Uh, it has been it has been it has been very challenging mm -hmm. raising. Okay. And I wanted to get your views about sure. what we should do with this bathroom situation. Well I'll tell you what, I think one of the I have a lot of things I want to tell you, but the first one is just my first feeling is that the problem to me is making this bathroom thing such a problem. So I'm not saying it's not important, but if we make it too important that his pee is in the toilet or his poop is in the toilet, we make it too big and put too much pressure on it, and we also give him some power 
to create a power struggle, or I think what you guys have created is a power struggle with him, which unfortunately also makes a power struggle between him and his own body to use this in some way. So even the way you said we did this perfectly and you guys were so proud of yourself, so we did potty training perfectly, it's putting too much pressure on this. That And even the way you talk about his feelings, you know, just like going to the bathroom, people and our feelings are messy sometimes. And so we have to accept that it's going to be messy. But I think from what I'm hearing from you, you want things to be very clean and fit very nicely in a box. But when we do that, we first of all, we're not accepting the reality, which is that we're messy and at four years old, they have even mistakes and things happen. Um, but that, you know, we're, we're not letting him be himself. And that's what I don't want. And we're creating these these struggles. So something I heard in your story was this underlying theme of putting too much pressure on this, that we were good parents because he got potty trained quickly. And then now we're bad parents because he's resisting or he's going to be, uh, I don't know, an anal retentive type if he's holding it in. So we have to get him to stop it, it. So it's putting a lot of the pressure on yourselves. It also puts pressure on him. That doesn't help it. Even if we think of pressure, when someone has pressure on them, it's hard for them to just release and let go which is part of this process of going to the bathroom. So I think I'm happy you're talking to me and that means you take it seriously, which on one hand is good, but I think one of the issues is that you guys are taking it too seriously as in making it too big and that's putting a lot of pressure on the whole situation. Okay. I understand that. And, you know, we have um, read books and my husband and I, we have discussed this that we should just let it go Mm -hmm. and let him Yeah. And I don't, yeah, but there, you know, even though it sounds very difficult, so I hope I didn't make it seem like it was easy. It's very challenging. It's very hard. But the pressure you put on him, you guys put on yourselves too. You say other kids are doing this. It's so easy for other kids. And then he's this way. We want to look at him and accept him and try to understand him rather than judge him compared to other kids. Of course, it can be easier than this. We want that. But I don't want you to make him feel bad about this either. And the issues you're worried about, about him holding in, 
what's going to create more issues is whatever he does if you make him feel bad about that or that he's not as good as other kids or he's not good or any of those things that's going to have more of effect as whether or not he holds it in longer or less in a particular day so again be aware that your goal of course we want him to go to the bathroom if he doesn't go for that long till he's in pain of course i'm sure that's hard for you guys to see but we don't want to put so much pressure on the going to the bathroom part which means if you really are going to let him be i would even have conversations with him of is it something scary or he told you one time you forced him right yes he told and me what did you tell him and I remember this one incident that we were at a friend's pool party and all of his friends were in, in the pool and he had to pee so he would get out of the pool and he was holding on to his crotch but he would refuse to go to the bathroom because he didn't want to miss the fun because hmm. all, the, all his friends were in the bathroom. So that night he did that few times until it got so bad that he was in so much pain he was crying and basically we had to drag him to the bathroom to pee. And I think it was that incident that that it happened. Okay. And he's very headstrong, he's very stubborn, you know, uh, and... I don't know. I don't know how to break the cycle now. Yeah, so we don't want to. We're not gonna. You know, normally we don't want to have a power struggle, but maybe with your child, he's going to be even more hard-headed and very, like you said, gifted. That he'll see things and read through things. So it's not going to make a difference anyway. If you try to win with him, we don't want to win against him anyway. So when he told you you forced me, what did you tell him? I told him because I saw you in so much pain, and I know that it, as a parent, it bothers me and your dad to see you in so much pain we know that you're harming your bladder you're, you can be harming your kidneys and he understands all of that he tells me yeah the, you know that he can go up my bladder into my kidneys and mm-hmm. he explains the whole process but he would he will refuse to go yeah and so i mean i would also uh, say that it could be good to apologize to him too that if you made him feel bad that time that you you can explain those things also but i would start with the apology you know i'm sorry if i made you feel forced or i pushed you or it didn't feel good because maybe he still is holding on to that battle or what happened there and so this is where i was saying i feel like you put a lot of pressure on yourself that maybe you don't want to acknowledge that something you did he didn't like i'm not saying you did something bad but even showing him you understand his feeling that oh, I can see you didn't like it that time that I pulled you away or felt like I was dragging you or whatever he says. We want to make it very okay for him to tell you what he didn't like and for you to even apologize and acknowledge that, that you're right, that I pulled you or I didn't, you know, let me tell you. And then eventually you can tell him, especially to show him you weren't trying to hurt him or harm him. It was because you love him and you care for him that you didn't want him to hold in um, into his body and, you know, and you wanted him to go quickly and then go back to having fun. He was having such a good time. But but I think what I'm sensing with you is the pressure is a lot on yourself. You put a lot of pressure to be a good mom, which is great. I'm sure you are a wonderful mom and you do so many good things for him. But if you put too much pressure on yourself, then you put pressure on him to be good. Because anytime he doesn't do something good, you take that in some way of, you being a bad mom. And so either you're going to blame yourself or you make him feel bad that, oh, you're being a bad kid because I did everything right and you're being bad, so you're the bad kid. And even there's some flavors of that in how you talk about him. 
as being sensitive and 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 hard-headed in some ways rather than it just being in an observational way i felt a little bit of a judgment in that in the way you described it and it because it becomes either he's wrong or i'm wrong if something goes bad rather than you know what potty training usually is no pun intended a messy process for most kids it's rarely just they're potty trained and never do you have an issue again so it's not that you're a bad mom or he's a bad kid it's just potty training is hard we want to understand what's going on we definitely don't want to blame anyone and we want to especially make sure he feels okay about himself when he's doing this not that it's Thank good you, the doctor. What, how would you suggest what should we do moving forward you know, I actually want to ask you also, did anything change around the time? Does he have another sibling? No. No other sibling. Okay. And no other changes have happened around in the last year or so? Well, his grandparents who were here, so he's close to my mom and my in-laws, and they come and go. So whenever they leave, you know, he feels, he feels sad. Hmm. But I not sure if it happened exactly around that time, but okay. he's one of those people that, um, my son has memories from, like, way young, hmm. like, we can't believe the things that he remembers. Yeah. So he doesn't forget things, so he tells me that I force him to go to the bathroom. I normally don't believe in force, I'm sure, like, he's probably talking about that incident. Maybe, that he's yeah. Crying from pain that my husband and I, we, we, we took him to the bathroom by force, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to pee in order to feel better. We are good at apologizing. Good. If we make a mistake, we are, my husband and I are, are good at apologizing. And we don't play this uh, role that we are the parent and you have to listen to uh, everything we say because we are mm-hmm. your parent. But... Uh, you know, he does, like, for example, uh, we were at a party yesterday, and he, we could tell that he had to pee. But he was holding on to his pee, and he was so agitated, so he was screaming. In the whole party, he was mm. screaming. And my husband and I, we could tell it's because that he has to go to use the bathroom, and he's not. So we took him to the bathroom for him to pee. And then he comes in, and he's looking at himself in the mirror, and he's screaming. And my husband tells him that, you know, stop screaming. People are going to think that your mom and I are hurting you. Why are you doing this? And he's smirking in the mirror like he's smiling, and he's screaming. Mm-hmm. Just to, and then he tells us that I'm screaming so that people think that you're hurting me. Mm. So, and my husband and I, we are looking at each other yeah. like, my goodness. Yeah, so I have. I wish we had more time. I have less than a minute. I, I would be happy if we can talk another time because there's a lot more to talk about than we can in this short amount of time. But it's not that you guys are bad parents, but he's trying to tell you somehow I am hurting. It doesn't mean you've hurt him intentionally. It doesn't mean that you've done something really wrong when I hear this story. But whenever a child tells us anything or shows us anything, we always want to approach with a curiosity of I want to understand why he's saying this and your child does seem to be a little bit gifted and different in some ways and different means some ways harder some ways easier and sometimes just different and so it will be challenging but we want to make sure we don't make him feel bad for being different if he is gifted beautiful if he was not gifted beautiful it's fine we want to just make sure he feels okay as he is and to me that's 
way more important than this technique that you're going to use to help him. We want to make sure he's clearly using this as a battle with you guys, a power struggle. If he's yeah. laughing in the mirror, if he's not doing it at school, doesn't mean you guys are bad parents that he has a power struggle. These things happen. We want to make sure we make it less important to me, him, even if he has to wear a diaper, that's okay. He doesn't have but that. He won't. Okay, he then ask him, but ask him what he wants to do. We have to help him or have him help us. I do have to stop the show. I hope if you want to call Wednesday, we can talk some more. I do apologize. We don't have enough time. It's not an easy situation and don't feel like you have to solve it today, but give him some space and some time and hopefully it'll get better. But I hope we can talk again soon. Okay, thank you sure. very, very much for your time. My pleasure. It. Take care. Have a good night. good night. All right, we're a little bit over time, so I'll be quick. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a good night. Ninety-four-seven KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.